Welcome to our 67th lesson in the book of Revelation. I've entitled it Jerusalem of Slavery. And we're looking at Revelations 11 verses 7 and 8. And this is a continuation of our study of the two witnesses. In fact, those are our protagonists. And they're publicly declaring John the Baptist's message. Now, I say John the Baptist's message is because John the Baptist came in the similitude or the likeness of Elijah. But he wasn't Elijah. See, nobody gets resurrected and comes and actually comes back. The closest person who did that was Samuel. And his spirit came back ish and went back. But he didn't take on a new body. He didn't take on the old body. He didn't take on anybody. He rose up from Sheol, paradise, not Sheol, hell, and answered Saul's burning question, am I going to die tomorrow? And Samuel said, yep, you won't die tomorrow. And because you're king and your father and your sons are loyal, they will die with you. In other words, your actions didn't affect just you. They affected your family and they affected the nation. And the nation will suffer defeat. And God's not going to come bail you out because God told you he wasn't going to come bail you out before. That's why he picked David to be your replacement. And you fought against that. At no point did Saul show repentance and humility And even up in, to the end, he took his own life or had an attendant take his life. And so that is the only return we have in the scripture. Now, I say the only, the only specific personal one when Christ died on the stars when he said it is finished and there was a great earthquake and graves were cracked open and, and people saw some of the dead their spirits walking about you didn't see the bodies walking about that's that's horror film zombie stuff that it can't happen because that's not how God operates. Now what about those who died and miraculously came back to life? In fleshly bodies, in their bodies. Well, they weren't dead very long if they were truly dead. Now am I saying that God lied? No. But 
we'll just have to say that we don't know what happened to them. But we do know that their bodies did not decay. And we know when the soul leaves the body, that body can no longer maintain itself. And it begins to decay. I've seen bodies kept alive on ventilators and begin to decay. You cannot stop that process. Once the soul leaves that body, that body cannot maintain itself. And it will break down. That is just how it was designed to do. And why is is this important? Because we have to understand that the complexities of Scripture, as we're viewing them through our sinful, fleshly mind, even though it's, it's a renewed mind, we're still trapped in the fleshly body, and, and we see it as through an enigma. We struggle with it, and we will always struggle with it until we get our new bodies, and we won't have that sin element constantly confounding us. And guess what? It's still going to be an enigma because God is infinite and we are not. And to explore all the ramifications will take all eternity. And because it's infinite and he is infinite, there is always more to explore. It's like a Mendelbrot graphic. No matter how tiny you, the tiniest detail you take that to and expand it out, it looks exactly as the major did. It doesn't lose detail. It doesn't lose complexity. It continues. And no matter how deeply to what power you look at it and in what minute detail it is still there in all its complexity. Welcome to Scripture. We'll be studying it for all eternity. And we will still be amazed at discovering new things about ourselves and about Christ constantly. And we'll come back to the scripture and see a relationship that we never saw before. And then we will see it at work around us and just have the time just to stop and just be amazed. So this is what we're encountering here in Revelation. This complexity this interrelationship that looking back through the rest of Scripture, preceding Scripture, we see it unfolding. And, and it's revealing to us this last mystery, that Scripture is complex, and that there are levels to it that we do not understand and do not appreciate right now. 
And really, we're basically scratching the surface. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he sees and perceives Christ as through an enigma. He only knows him in part. He says Christ knows him totally. And when he sees Christ, which means that he's seeing Christ either after leaving his fleshly body or at the rapture and getting his new body, he will then know him without the element of sin. But since Christ is infinite, he's not going to know him completely. And we're going to spend the rest of eternity trying to know Christ completely. And through Christ the Father. Always empowered and knit together into a whole by the Spirit. Now we just dimly perceive what all of that jargon means. Because we're like little school children able to answer questions on a test and don't have a clue what the answers actually mean. But we can answer the questions. And you know, this is, while I'm here, let me go on this little rabbit trail. This is the problem with growing up in churches. Second generation, third generation Christians. People who have been exposed to the messages, but not changed by the message. In other words, they have the appearance of godliness without the power of the godliness flowing through them. They are not saved. Now, I'm not saying that everyone like this is inherently devious and overtly lying. But I'm saying it's so easy to fall into this covert trap of Satan and live in the delusion that you indeed are saved. I myself, not that I grew up in a church family, but mom and I talked about scripture and, and uh, I myself believed that for about five or six years I was saved when I was not. Not at all. I could talk the Bible. I could teach the Bible. But it didn't change my life. I was still the same sinner. With the same thoughts. With the same corruption in my life. I could answer the questions. And this is the problem when pe children grow up in the church, they can answer the questions. But they've not been changed. It's not a matter of answering the questions. It's not about passing the test. Christ doesn't need us to pass a test to demonstrate our knowledge. We must be changed on the inside. 
the scriptures, especially First uh, John, he gives us a blueprint. And we need to measure ourselves and be honest with ourselves. Because trust me, at death, the truth will be very honest and very brutal. That is not the time to discover. Those people Christ talked about in Matthew chapter 7. I said, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do all this for you? And he said, nope, you didn't. You did it for you. Because I did not know you. You were not joined to me. You were not say you did not have the new covenant. You did not repent. Were they sincere? Ish? Yeah. But once brutal truth looks you in the eye, that decision is fixed for eternity. And thus, this is why we have the Bible. This is why Israel, the northern kingdom, had Elijah. This is why Judea had John the Baptist, who came in the likeness of Elijah because he had the same message as Elijah. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3. Verses 1 and 2. And Christ reiterated that after John was imprisoned by Herod in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Repent! The kingdom of God is here! And that's the function of the two witnesses during the three and a half years to not only the Jews, primarily to the Jews, but also to the entire world. Because remember, there's going to be the separation of nations into sheep and goats. And though the goats don't go into the millennial kingdom, they, they go into that part of Sheol that you don't want to go to. The sheep are ushered into the millennial kingdom. So they can... Produce little sinners who will aggregate and eventually rise up and rebel against Christ. And one final desperate display of incorrigible sinfulness egged on by the beast of the abyss. Now, we're going to get to all of that. But we need to understand the context, how this fits in. It flows. Because around this, remember, are the natural phenomenon. It's because we don't mention them in every lesson. We need to remember that the continents are shifting. There's, there's constant earthquakes and tremors and... and Volcano eruptions and atmospheric displays of, 
of the after effects of the sun's micronova. And the sun is darkened and the moon is red and or darkened and, and the atmosphere is has all this debris in it from the constant volcanoes that are spewing up and the continents are shifting and the weather patterns are are changing and the crops are failing and people are desperate and disease is rampant and everything that you believe that you know as absolute truth and fact because of science you discover is not true. You can discover that today. But most people won't. That which you believe to be absolute bedrock fact is not fact. It's your worldview. It's your assumptions. And it is being used against you. Because that's what Satan does. He is the master liar. He is the master deceiver. He's not, and he, he's the accuser. That's what the name means. But he accuses you to drive you, to delude you. And so these two witnesses are sending out the message for three and a half years approximately, which overlaps or coincides with the rise of the Antichrist and, and development of his kingdom. Indeed, the other uh, socialistic kingdoms of the earth, there, there's like four of them, and we'll get to that uh, as we go through Revelation. Antichrist never becomes the one rule, world ruler. There's never a one world government per se. That just never happens, and it will never happen until the millennial kingdom and then it's Christ. And then mankind decides they don't like that. They don't want that. And so the message is constantly being proclaimed and it's augmented by their signs that, of course, mirror what Moses did, Moshish in the Hebrew, Back in Exodus, I said mirror, they're going to be exactly the same, so it would be similar to it. And also like Elijah, where he caused droughts and called fire down from heaven and stuff. And, and, uh, but it's always about the power of the word of God and the still, small voice. You want displays. You think you're going to get access to having those displays and people will just be agog because you have power. That mindset right there shows that you're not saved. Or if you're saved, you're very immature. Because as Elijah had to learn, 
It's not about the outward displays. It's about the small voice of humility. That's why Christ came as a humble slave. To serve those he was going to die for. Those who were going to murder him. So we need to understand that yes, these things will be happening. But that is not the focus of our attention. The focus of our attention is on the subtle details. Now the beast of the abyss is the accuser. Because sin degrades. Satan is never seen, after his fall, he's never seen as anything other than an animal. An animal. And if you turn to Psalm 73, and I've talked about this in other lessons occasionally, when it's pertinent, is that sin drives us to emulate the animal. To debase ourselves, degrade ourselves, to just respond to our, the basic animalistic desires of the flesh and it drives us. There is nothing inherently noble about animal behavior. Now animals don't sin. They're not inherently evil. They have no moral nature therefore they are not good nor evil. They just exist and they do what they do. But angels are created beings with a moral nature. People are created beings with a moral nature. We can be evil. In fact, we're born evil. We're, we're conceived in sin and evilness. And we may not realize the worst of human behavior that is possible, in each and every one of us. But it is possible. It's just for the grace of God that you're not put in those circumstances that you're forced to see how terrible you can act. That it's there, just beneath the surface of each and every one of you. And Satan wants to blind people to Christ's message. The salvation message. To be saved. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, this is Paul talking, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That would be the lost. Now we're all dying. But that's not whom he's talking to. He, when he talks about those who are perishing here, he's talking about the lost. Because death is about the soul. Death is not about cessation of existence. It's not about annihilation. It's about separation of the soul from the body. 
and separation of the soul from Christ. We are born separated from Christ already. By repenting and clinging to Christ, we gain the new nature and we are now one with Christ in his body. But if you don't have that, you are called dead in trespasses and sins already. You are in the act of perishing. Now, we see this back in Genesis chapter 2, but not in the ESV and not so much in the English, but it's very obvious in the Hebrew. When God tells Adam, and Adam is just the Hebrew word for man, Adam, when he tells him, if you eat of this tree of knowledge, dying, you shall die. In other words, a process and an immediate result. So the spirit died the moment he sinned. But he's in that process of the body dying, but he's also in that process of if he does not turn to God, of being permanently separated from him. In other words, lake of fire, standing in judgment. So that is what Paul is alluding to here. Those who are perishing in this process, in their case, the God of this world, and that's really what Satan fashions himself as. He wanted to be his God. He didn't want to be his God as the Father because, well, he's an idiot. He's not stupid. There's only one God. God's infinite. There can only be one God. You you cannot have multiple infinite gods by definition. If a God is infinite, then he takes up everything. So it's never about Satan wanting to be as the father. It's Satan wanting to replace the son. And we get this concept from Hebrews chapter 1. And we've talked about this in other lessons. So he is the God of this world. And he works to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that is the battle here. And these two witnesses are blowing the cover on that. And they cannot be touched. You can war against them, but you cannot defeat them until their ministry is completed. And when their ministry is completed, they can be conquered and killed. Christ said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, I pick it up. I want to expand that and say that is true of you. No one takes your life. 
you don't die one moment earlier than ordained by the Father. Nor do you live one moment after you're ordained by the Father. And that is as true of the lost as it is of the saved. Now we don't have time in this lesson to discuss all the ramifications of that. Now we can attribute it to health habits, good and bad. We can attribute it to diet, good and bad. We can attribute it to <clears throat> decisions, good and bad. But in actual fact, you will not die one moment earlier or later than ordained by the Father. Thus, when it talks about these two dying, being conquered and killed after their ministry is completed, it's no different for them than it is for us. Each of us is a witness to those around us. You're either a witness for Christ or a witness for Satan. But you are a witness. And you're in a constant state of worship with every moment, every word, every deed that proceeds is a outgoing testimony for your God. The God of this world or the God that created the world. These two, two men of their time, they didn't know who they were, but they're empowered with the charisma, the, out, the indwelling spirit flowing out through them, just like Elijah, just like Moses, just like Isaiah, just like you, if you're saved. And you are not quenching, suppressing the spirit, like the immature believers that are so easily captivated by the ways of the world, like Saul, and like each of us in some form or fashion. And so the believers are living examples of life in Christ. And unbelievers attack believers because of the truth of the message. Because it exposes their lie. We don't go out and attack. I never like negative ministries. And we don't see Christ having a negative ministry. He's not out there running around exposing the Essenes, exposing the Greeks, uh, exposing 
the Romans, exposing uh, Hermeticism and Gnosticism and and Egyptian mythology. He's not running around. He's not doing any of that. But instead, he's pointing as a witness to those who claim to be saved. Those who claim to know God, to speak of God, to speak about God, to speak for God. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he says that by and large, they are lost. It's not to expose them. It's to witness to them so they recognize that they are lost and need salvation. That's what a witness does. Now, you don't have to run around and tell everybody they're lost. In fact, it'd be preferable if you didn't because you don't know that is fact. That'd just be conjecture on your part. We just live our lives and they will hate you for it. You know how I can tell about people's spirituality? When you bring up sin of a loved one, their loved one, what is their reaction? Do they get quiet? Do they rush and defend that person? Do they excuse them? Or do they hold up scripture and have to grudgingly admit that that person is struggling in sin? See, they're a witness for their God, but it's not Christ. Because Christ's light shines in the dark places so that we might know we are sinners. That we might know the truth. And then it is incumbent upon us. Will we accept that truth? But if you're running around trying to hide the truth, trying to cover the truth, to continue the darkness, that says much about you and about those you quote-unquote, defend. True love is exposing the truth so that people know their true condition. That is what true love is. And if you're not doing that, then you are living the lie. You are not doing the truth. And they will curse you for all eternity. Because you knew the truth and hid it from them. You abetted them in their delusion until death. And then that delusion goes away. See, the war is about spiritualities versus spiritualities. It's not about people against people. That is the delusion. The lost want to kill you to remove your testimony to continue their delusion. Now, they'll, they'll put various guises on it. We're doing it for democracy. We're doing it for socialism. We're doing it for truth. We're doing it for whatever. But it's all a lie. 
It is all the lie. You could kill me. And what happens? You send me directly to Christ. Okay. I know it's not too painful in the transition. But, okay. One moment I'm here. Next moment, I leave all this behind. It no longer has a hold on me. You have released me from sin's grasp. When you've released me from this body of sin, and I am with Christ. And it only gets better from there. But Christians, when you attack the lost, you only entrench them in their delusion. And you waste your efforts because they are not the enemy. They are the victims. And we may have to defend ourselves against them, but they are the victims. Just as we once were the victims. So, but they try to suppress the truth because they are like their father, the devil, a liar, steeped in violence. John eight forty four. And he was thus from the moment he sinned. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Steeped in his primary trade is violence. And lying. Can't forget the lying. And so we need to stop attacking people. See, if you just speak the truth and teach people about the scripture, they can see the lies of others. We don't have to run around and tattle on everyone and, and, and negative ministry and attack every negative because there'll always be one. There'll always Satan just changes the stage dressing that keeps you and confused and it keeps you moving and it keeps you from doing that which you're supposed to actually be doing, which is teaching the gospel. Being the witness to people like these two work will be. So what was gained when these two were killed? Well, well, that'll be in our next lesson. Because they're going to have a party. Not the two witnesses, obviously. When Christians attack the lost, the immediate messengers are stopped. But the message continues via others because of the spirituals behind the scenes. You ever watch the movie Matrix? You know those agent guys? You spend all this energy attacking the agent, and then you, you, you finally get him. But you didn't. Because he just leaves that body and goes to a different one. 
You expended all that energy for nothing. But you don't transition out of your body. You don't transition out of your body. You don't get to get a new body and start over and continue this hermetic battle of good and evil that is pointless. We need to stop this. The spiritual warfare is not fought against people. And it's not fought with weapons. It's fought with truth and the gospel and living the gospel. And it's not so much about surviving so that the body will eventually die because let's face the body going to die. What is your goal in life? Is your goal to live forever? Okay, you fail. That's not a good goal. Because even if you are able to develop the technology to transfer your, your soul into an animatronic something or other, transhumanism, posthumanism, guess what? This whole creation is going to wind down and stop. Well, not millions of years from now, but it doesn't matter if you're going to be living forever. It doesn't matter if it's millions of years. It's still going to stop. You're still going to die. What's your goal? So attacking the people is pointless. And them attacking you is pointless. Satan is an angel. He can't overcome Christ, God. And he can't even overcome the truth. The truth is good logic. Law of identity, law of non-contradiction, law of exclusive middle, and the law of logical inferences. And he can't overcome that. That is why they must lie. And they lie through logic, illogical fallacies or logic fallacies, such as ad hominem, straw man attacks, and informal logic fallacies, in which they don't even state the argument correctly. But it's mainly through informal logic fallacies that they're most effective. Conflation. Now we've have put other labels on these, such as reflexivity and, and fertile fallacies and so on and so forth. But it's the dialectic. It's the thesis, God's truth, attacked by the antithesis, Satan's lie, to achieve Satan's goal at multiple levels. This is the Hermetic Gnostic dialectic. And Satan's government is always socialistic. Now John introduces and defines what's known in, in theology as a technical term, the great city. And it focuses on false Jews. Now that's my terminology. The false Jews. I could have just said the synagogue of Satan. 
but there are true Jews like Paul. Now, if you're a true Jew right now, if you're a Jew and you recognize the truth of Christ and accept the death of Christ for your sin and you are dwelt with the Holy Spirit and have the new nature, guess what? You're a Christian. Because that's what Paul calls himself. But church is out. So now those who get saved get the new nature, and there are what I call the true Jews. Now I want to make very clear that in Romans 2, toward the end of the chapter, Paul writes, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly whose heart is circumcised by the Spirit, so on and so forth. This does not mean that Christians become Jews. This is not replacement theology. You don't become something you're not. The Abrahamic covenant was extended to Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah reiterated this. Christ reiterated this. And now we're seeing it played out here in Revelation. As Christ witnessed to the lost people of his day, these two witnesses are witnessing to the lost Jews of their day, saying, repent. And you get about the same reaction. But it, it goes out to not just the Jews, primarily to them, but also to the Gentiles, and to the spiritual forces around them, the Antichrist, to Satan, the beast. Now, I want us to understand that this term, the great city, occurs several times in Revelation. This is the first instance of it. And it's defined by three characteristics through three three metaphors or two metaphors and a metonymy. One is Sodom, that total social depravity that permeates every aspect of that society and God judged it. Now, he didn't judge every society before or since, but he judged that one in such a dramatic fashion that it became a metaphor throughout Scripture. And we see it here again in the last book of the Bible. Egypt is that world hermetic, dialectic, uh, religious government system That has continued even into our time. And it's always been there. It was there at Babel. It was there with Cain, who established it. When he established the first social government. The first city. First urban government.
and Egypt in Scripture is a picture of this world. It's a metaphor for the world system. And it's a religious, political system. Because anytime you define morality, that is your religious system. And anytime that morality defines behavior with punishments, that is government. And then, just in case you missed it, it's where Christ was impaled on the Staros. Starao is impaled. Stauros is what he was impaled on. In other words, Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem. Where he died as our Paschal Lamb. So this earthly Jerusalem is a slave to sin, a hater of Christ and persecutor of the saved. Let's go to Galatians 4, 21 through 30. And when you go there, Paul explains this metaphor to us. Because in here, he is addressing Gentiles. And he's telling them through this metaphor of earthly Jerusalem and heavenly Jerusalem what it means to be under the law. Now, these Gentiles are being influenced by the Jews of their locale. Uh, yeah, yeah, there is God. And, and here are the scriptures, and they say, you must be circumcised, and you must do this, and you must come under the Mosaic law and you must do all these things and then you will be proselytes. In other words, you will always be second-class citizens to us. Now, if you know about the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, there were several courts. There was court of the priests around the altar. There was the court of the men outside of that. There was the court of the women beyond that. And then there was the court of the Gentiles. You could not advance into the next court. The Gentiles were always going to be outside, second class. Women were always going to be second class to men. The men were always going to be second class to the priests. There was this hierarchy. None of this is ordained by God. You don't see any of this in God's rules to Moses and instructions to Moses about the tabernacle. This is all done by the Jews themselves. Not by God. And so Paul is talking to the Galatians that have been influenced by the Jews. You want to come under the Mosaic law? You want to be slaves? Because you ain't never going to be first class. Not by their system. It's designed to keep you second class. You might call it the Jim Crow religion of their day. 
He says, you don't want to do that. Because earthly Jerusalem is like Hagar. It goes all the way back to Genesis. See, I'm not the only one that goes back to Genesis a lot. Paul does too. And he goes back to Genesis and he says, Abraham had two sons, one by Hagar, when he made, with the help of Sarah, the encouragement of Sarah, a child, but not the child of the miracle. Not the child of Sarah. Isaac corresponds to heavenly Jerusalem. Now we know that Paul had to have seen this in his vision. That he speaks about in 2 Corinthians 12. And so there's an earthly Jerusalem, and we all see that and know that, and it always fell short. And it was where Christ was crucified at, outside the gates, Hebrews 13. And we go outside the gates and share his shame by identifying with him. We're not trying to seek legitimacy in this world. Like Ibrahim in Hebrews 11, we are looking for the city to come, not the one that's here. The one that's here is a city of slavery. And worse. And by the time we get to Revelations chapter 17 and 18, we're going to see how much worse it actually is. It is the city of slavery. Do you want to come under that slavery? Because they have no part and parcel with Christ. That's why he called them in the church letters the synagogue of Satan. And he says, in the ESV it says that it is symbolically, but in the Greek it says it is pneumatikos. In other words, it is spiritually discerned. And we use either or logic to do this. In other words, if the Bible says they're evil, they can't be good. It's either or. And Christ tells us this. In Matthew 23, he says, as a, as a hen, I would gather you under my wings. But you didn't want that. So, you get what you want. See, as a parent, I'm not, I don't give my kids what they want. I give them what they need. Now, they may go out and get what they want. Then they got to deal with the consequences of that. And sometimes for the rest of their lives. And that's what we all do. You, know, you get what you want. That's not hard to do, especially as you get older. Then you got to deal with it. 
And that's on you. It's not on me. But the lost, they don't understand either or logic. It's non-sequitur, it does not follow. Because either or logic in Romans 1, 18 through 28, tells us that it is not based on Christ. I mean, either or logic is based on Christ. Their logic, the both dash and logic, is not based on Christ. In fact, it actively rejects Christ, actually seeks to build a worldview without Christ. Thus, it inherently is based on a lie. The lost do not have and do not want spiritual discernment via the Holy Spirit to seek the truth. That is the antithesis to them. They do not want that. They walk in the dark willingly, but they can't overcome the light. The Jews and the Gentiles impelled Christ to stop the message, but it didn't stop the message. It spread the message. Paul sought before his salvation experience, to stomp the truth out. They didn't believe it the truth. He believed he had the truth. He was a sincere believer. He was just sincerely wrong in his belief. Because Christ changed everything at his death. Paul didn't get the memo. So he got the memo on the way to Damascus. And he got saved. And though Satan claims victory, Christ turns it into victory as he does in our lives. When I say claims the victory, through his minions, he killed the two witnesses. Is it a victory? as much as it was putting Christ on the sorrows, I guess. But we're going to see that in our next lesson. So let's understand this. Rome is nothing. The Protestants, those, those protesters from the Reformation, always attacking the Pope, even today. The Pope is the Antichrist. His headquarters is in Rome. Antichrist is going to be in Rome because he's going to be part of that Roman ethnic heritage. Now we see this in Daniel too, that uh, out of the legs of iron comes the feet of iron and clay, which is the revived Roman Empire-ish thing. Of, of, and we'll get into that into more detail as we proceed in Revelation, most known notably in uh, chapter 13. But just know that just because the revived Roman-ish empire government system was comes into existence, and it has and exists today around us in what we 
usually referred to as the Western uh, Judo-Greco-Roman culture. That doesn't mean it's headquarters in Rome or will be headquartered in Rome or that the Pope is the Antichrist. In fact, why would he be the Antichrist? He would be the false prophet. They don't even give him the right title. But that is just their eisegesis, reading into Scripture. But Scripture never calls them that. Instead, we see Satan putting his sights on Jerusalem. Ben-Gurion, the father, the Zionist, socialistic father of modern Israel, said in a Look article, I think it was in 61 or 62, and I have a copy of it saved on, on my computer and stuff. He envisioned the world government, world courts, being built and maintained, headquartered, in Jerusalem by 1987. He was a little ahead of his time. But he was a little behind in his prediction. It will come. It will be there. It just hasn't happened yet. And why? Because Satan wants to occupy the temples of his enemies and flaunt it. Now we see this happening in the Old Testament where the Philistines captured the ark and they took it and they put it in their temple and said, see, our God is more powerful than your God. Except it wasn't. And, and we see this again with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and later on the Persians, that when they conquer the enemies, they take their gods and they put them in their temples. And we see it today. This is what the Muslims do. When they move into an area, they conquer an area, they build a mosque on top of or beside your religious building showing their superiority. They did this putting the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount site. And they make it holy. But it's not holy. If you mean it's from God, I mean, you can designate anything that's holy to you. So what? But this is what they do. They historically do this in lands they conquer. And why? Because this is what Satan does. Catholicism did the same thing. Building churches wherever it went. Showing that their God was more powerful than your God because they could kill you. And you either convert or die. Didn't make it right, didn't make it of Christ, didn't make it Christian in the biblical sense. But it did make it Christendom in the satanic sense. So false Jews will seek to control and enslave Gentiles in this coming kingdom during the Great Tribulation. 
And we're going to see that that doesn't work well for them. The second age culminates with earthly Jerusalem promoting Antichrist. And we see this both in the history of the northern kingdom Israel, which Elijah was raised up to challenge that and call them to repentance. And even with slaughtering the prophets of Baal, the northern kingdom did not repent. There was not a widespread revival. And they all just rushed to Jerusalem to worship in the temple and toppled the government. Didn't happen. Ahab stayed in power. Jezebel stayed in power. And... Israel, the northern kingdom, stayed worshiping their calf gods, idols, hermetic, Gnostic dialecticism at uh, Samaria and Dan. Didn't change. Elijah was defeated. And he said, I quit. And he ran away. And God ran him all the way back to Mount Horeb where the law was first given. And he experienced the thunders and the lightnings and all of that. And God had to tell Elijah, I'm not in that. I'm in the voice. And you're not the only one. And these two are not the only one. And you're not the only one. You may feel like you're the only one in your family. And you may well be. But you're not the only one. And it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the God who works through us. Who empowers us. Who enables us to have that voice. See, if you don't have that voice... If you go quiet or, or you defend those who sin and you defend their sin, how can you claim to have the Spirit of God in you? How can you claim to have the new covenant, the new nature in you? How can it be there? If you're not the witness of Christ, and they will hate it. But you're not doing it to be hated. You're not doing it to attack. You're not doing it to call fire down from heaven. You're just living the message. Are you living the message? Or are you living Satan's message? See, Christians who promote modern Israel as a sign of Christ's soon return accelerate Satan's kingdom. This is usually immature believers who are struggling, like Saul, struggling with the truth and wanting one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. I want the best of both worlds. Well, you get the worst of both worlds, actually, because the world will never accept you. Never. Now, you will never lose your salvation, but you'll be spending some time in the spanking room 
stand before the beam of seat of Christ, giving account. And then seeing what you could have obtained for all eternity compared to what you actually are given. Now it'll be true of all of us to some degree because we all fall short. But don't be that one that succumbs to false teachers. Because remember in our study, the letters to the churches here in Revelation, that is how Satan was able to destroy the influence of churches, true churches, was to work to sneak in them through immature believers, overcome them, flood them with false believers, and then turn them into his churches, satanic churches. And I don't mean Romanesque, Catholic-type churches worshiping Satan and Plaxman. I don't mean that. That's just silly. That's just funny. That is the churches that are Christendom. They're not Christ. They're Christ-like but not. And so here we are once again taking these two verses and expanding it out from Genesis all the way back to almost creation down to our age and then beyond. This is how we study the scripture. This is how I try to bring the tendrils in and make it relevant and show it to be relevant and show you the pitfalls. All I can do is show you what scripture says. You must apply it to your life. You must want to take it up, to digest it, to embrace it. I can't make you do that. I wish you could. But then no, I don't, because by making you do it, it's no longer of Christ, it's now of me. And it becomes a false religion and not a true faith. I can only beg you. I can only pray for you. And I can only watch as you make those same mistakes I made and suffer the same consequences and bitter disappointments. And the only solace I can have is that at some point you will wake up and repent. and come back to the fold. Will these false Jews of Jerusalem during this three and a half year come back to the fold? Or will they stay out in the dark? That we'll have to wait until our next lessons. Thank you.